one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really really want it all to work out while you're away. monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Alex Kruger and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to the historian Orlando Figes, who has made the study of Russia his life's work. He's published numerous books, including on the Russian Revolution and Russia's cultural history. And his latest book is The Story of Russia. Fajis, welcome to World Review. Thank you. You've called it the story of Russia, not the history of Russia. Why? Indeed, because what I wanted to do with this book was on top of giving a concise and I hope readable, even enjoyable overview of a thousand years of Russian history, I wanted to unpack how the Russians see their own history, how they assign certain meanings to stories from their past. So the story of Russia as such is part of historical memory, and I think we need to understand that today more than ever, really. And that was the inspiration for the book that I felt since 2014 and the beginning of the invasion, a growing disconnect between the way we might write the history of Russia and the way I've thought about it and taught it for 35 years, and the way the Russians unpack their own history, the way they've assigned certain meanings and ideological significance to certain episodes in their history. And that's rooted partly in the historiography of Russia, which we don't really teach in the West, but it's also rooted in the myth-making of the regime and the Putin regime in its myth-making is not that different from many previous regimes. One thinks of Stalin, one thinks of the Tsars, who've all changed the story of Russia, if you like, to suit their particular purposes. How does Putin fit in to the precedents set by the Tsars? You mentioned the Tsar as the little father, and that seems to be a, a repeated theme. How does Putin use that? He uses a number of elements of Tsarist ideology. Probably the most important is this notion of the ruler, the Tsar, as a paternal figure, protector of the nation, whose power is almost sacred 
and this goes back to the Byzantine tradition in Russian history, and the notion that the Tsar is, is more than just a representative of God. He makes himself into virtually a human God through the cult of the personality or through the veneration of the princely saint or the saintly prince. These have traditional roots in Russian history. And he's also, I think, gone further than that in building through the sort of armory of the state's propaganda machinery on a cult of the leader, apart from the people but looking after them, remote but somehow intimately involved in their lives, the strong man who protects the country, all of which goes back to Stalin. We can see his drawing from a number of elements in the Russian tradition of statecraft, but also in the Russian tradition of power projection, this sacralization of power being so important. You mentioned 2014 and the first invasion of Ukraine. And obviously, since February, Ukraine and Russia have been absolutely at the centre of the world's attention. For you as an historian, is it frustrating to see people getting things wrong about Russia or misunderstanding? Are, 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 there, are there particular misimpressions that you would like to correct in the, in, in the public understanding? I think Western views of Russia are quite stereotypical. And so, for example, over Ukraine, the dominant Western way of looking at it, uh, going back to the 19th century, is that Russia is an autocracy and by virtue of its fragility is an aggressive state, an expansionist state. And that has a perfectly reasonable historiography and historical record to back it. But from the Russian point of view, if we take Ukraine, they've been brought up to see themselves as part of an empire in which the Russians are the big brothers to Belarus and the Malarus, the, the little Russians as they see themselves in this imperial discourse. And Putin's built on that in a way that we may think of as pure lies and deceit, but which actually fits in to the stories Russians have told themselves for centuries. Namely, that Ukraine, as, long, as soon as it breaks breaks away or tries to break away from the protection of the big brother Russian state. It falls under the influence of hostile Western powers. If it's the Poles and the Lithuanians in the 17th century, or the Austrians in the 19th century, NATO Germans today in the First World War, the Nazis in the Second World War, NATO today, all of this fits into a sort of tradition of Russians seeing themselves under attack because of the fragility of their borders. There are no clear boundaries to define Russia. And Ukraine is an ill-defined geographical entity, as well as being a nation and a state. So it's been part of Czechoslovakia, it's been part of Hungary, it's been part of Poland-Lithuania, it's been part of the Soviet Union. From Moscow's point of view, Ukraine has always been susceptible to foreign intervention in a way that, as Putin mapped out in history essay of July 21, which I think we can see almost as the declaration of war, the historical justification for the war, Ukraine becomes puppet of Western powers trying to attack Russia. Now, we may see that as paranoid, but that's not how the Russians see it. And until we begin to understand how the Russians see it, we won't be able to deal with them. I think it was 
It's a saying attributed to Mark Twain that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And one of the things, there are an awful lot of rhymes in Russian history that you pull out through the book, like the the theme of autocracy going all the way back to the Mongols, the continuation, the continuity between orthodoxy and and communism. These are fascinating themes that keep coming back about the centralization of the economy, going back to, to, to Peter the Great. There are all these themes and it's it was surprising to me to realise how far back some of these things went and some of the connections between them. Yes, and that is one of the issues I try to explain in the book, these what I call structural continuities of Russian history. So the sacralization of power we've already talked about, but equally important in this tradition, I think, is the, is the patrimonial conception of the state, that the state that Russia is run by the Tsar as part of his household property, really. Indeed, in in 1897, at the time of the first census in Russia, Nicholas II registered himself as the owner of Russia. And that's the conception, that, that you own Russia and you give out land to your servitors, the aristocracy, in exchange for obedient service to the state through the bureaucracy or the armed forces. But that property can be taken back as soon as the boyers step out of line of what the Tsar wants. And that relationship continues right through to today. So Putin treats the oligarchs as boyers. They are servitors of that state. They keep their property as long as they please him. But if they start criticizing him, they go straight to jail. And that patrimonial conception, I think, is really important to understand when we look at the Putin regime. For example, the issue of corruption. I think this is a mischaracterization of what it really is. Putin has a large castle, luxurious, palatial, hideously vulgar place in the Crimea, which Navalny puts forward as a great example of his mega corruption. And there are people who try to say he owns so much money or whatever. That's just completely to misunderstand it because he could make himself the richest person in the world if he wanted to. All he would have to do is to say to his oligarchs, give me money. But he doesn't. And equally, the palace is part of his patrimonial estate. He equates himself with Russia. He doesn't need to own this palace. It doesn't matter who owns it. He has its use. So this is a completely different conception of the state from the way we would think of power and property. It's melded into a patrimonial conception of statehood. But isn't it fair to say that there is a lot of corruption in Russia and that was how the oligarchs did accumulate some of their wealth, certainly to begin with? Oh, massively, yes. Kleptocracy is a fair description of the character of power. It's just that the if we try to impose Western concepts of the private and the public onto the Russian polity, we will only end up with a misunderstanding of it because it will be based on our own conceptions of what is seen as fair or what is seen as the way the system works. And in Russia, where power is patrimonial in this way, when you become an oligarch, you know that you have been bought by Putin, that you only hold your wealth and power for as long as he pleases. And that's a tradition that goes back into Russian history, arguably rooted in the Mongol period of occupation from the 13th through to the early 16th century, when again the Khan gave out 
property, but it was clear that he could cut down his servitors whenever he wanted. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman, in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And another parallel that when I was reading the part about Napoleon's invasion of Russia, some of what was some of that reminded me very much of Putin's language around Ukraine and what we've seen in some of the war in Ukraine with the Russian army becoming overextended and not realizing what it had got itself into and some of the arrogance certainly that has been reported and attributed to Putin in going into that venture. Is that a fair comparison? I think it's certainly fair to see Putin using the story of Alexander and Napoleon's invasion in the same way that he uses a number of 
other historical moments to build his narrative of essentially Russia being attacked from the West through Poland, as in the case of Napoleon, or Ukraine, as in the case today. I think he also uses that story of Napoleon's invasion of Russia and Alexander leading the liberation of Europe to argue that Russia has never been really given full respect or acknowledgement for the role it has played in saving Europe. And Putin's focus on a number of historical episodes in this sort of propaganda. Firstly, the Battle of Kulikova in 1380, which was the first victory Moscow had in repelling the Mongols who had occupied Russia and collected tribute from the Russians. He argues, as does the tradition of Russian historiography on which he rests, that uh, the Russians had effectively saved the West from the Mongols. They had absorbed the Mongol invasion and acted as a shield to the West. And the West had never really appreciated that. Likewise, with Napoleon, they had never fully appreciated the role that Russia had played as saviour of Europe. And most hurtfully of all, for Putin's point of view, the failure of the West to acknowledge the Soviet contribution, dominant contribution to the victory over Nazism. So I think perhaps one of the sort of triggers to this radicalization of Putin's imperialism was the failure of any Western leaders to come to the 70th anniversary of the 9th of May 1945 victory. It was essentially boycotted after the Crimean invasion probably rightfully, I would say. I would argue that the boycott of, of Russia after 2014 was not nearly strong enough. But that really hurt Putin because the myth of the Great Patriotic War, the myth of 1945 as the justification for everything that had been done under the Soviet Union and everything Russia had achieved is absolutely fundamental to Putin's notion of patriotism and to the idea of national unity. How much do people actually buy the buy into this idea of of the great patriotic war? Is it just Putin, or is it really part of people's conception of the Russian state? And how far are they willing to go to defend that? Oh no, that's my whole point. I think people do believe this. They've been taught in schools. They have been to history museums. They have been fed a constant diet of television programs, films, all harping on the same theme that Russia is not given due respect by the West, that Russia is threatened by the West, that its interests are contrary to Western universal principles and for good reason. All the polls we have, the polls now are not very reliable, Obviously, although they do show three quarters of the population supporting the war for what that's worth. But I think more indicative are the but I think more indicative, for example, there was a program, The Court of Time, which aired for several years on state television, in which they would evaluate a historical episode like World War II or like the Hitler-Stalin pact. And there would be pros and cons, evidence, and then the audience would vote for uh, either side in, in a phone-in. And 
if you look at the results of those debates, they show very clearly uh, a number of factors that I think are quite alarming. The most alarming perhaps being that the Russian population, as far as we can tell from these polls, supports the idea of state violence for a national goal. So even though the vast majority of those polled by this television program accepted that up to 30 million people have been unjustly killed by Stalin, they still believe that Stalin's political police was protecting the country. They still believe, 93% still believe that the Hitler-Stalin pact was justified on the basis of giving the Soviet Union time to enter the war and defeat Nazism. Only 7% believed what in the West we would see as the truth, that the Hitler-Stalin pact enabled Hitler to go to war against Poland and therefore start World War II. Is it possible to change that kind of mindset? Does Russia have the capacity to change or is it just so deep-seated that's the way it is and we just have to get to grips with it? No, I, I don't like the idea of mindsets or psyches or cultural DNA as explanatory factors for this. I think that it would only take a generation or two of reading different history books to change attitudes. And we saw that beginning to happen in the 1990s, when schools, for example, were empowered to choose their own textbooks. And that is, it seems to me, essential for the development of a democratic culture. But it's it's something that is certainly deeply ingrained in the Russian historical consciousness, precisely because Putin's ideology of Russia being under threat from the West, of needing a strong state, a strong leader to repel that threat, of needing to carry out collective sacrifice, of needing to have a sort of monarchical figure to guide them. All of these mythical ideas are rooted in a long tradition of history writing and history teaching and ideological ideas in Russian history going back at least to the early 19th century, if not before. So where does Russia go from here? What do you see? I mean, Putin is mortal, so eventually there will be an after Putin. If that were to happen, say, within the next six months, what path would you envisage Russia taking? I think it's wishful thinking, the idea that Putin might be run over by a metaphorical bus and someone more liberal-minded would come into power and stop the war. There's no real sign of a palace coup or any fundamental divisions in the leadership. They're all from a same type of leader. They've all, they're all in their late 60s, early 70s. They all saw the collapse of the Soviet Union as junior KGB or army party men, and all saw it as a catastrophe, a failure brought about by their seniors. And they're all, I think, united in the desire to avenge that and to take back as much of the Slavic core of the Soviet Union as they can in this imperial vision of Russia, which they share. So I don't see any fundamental change in ideology or in the direction of policy 
Even if Russia were to lose this war, by losing it, if they were forced out of the Donbass and New Russia, that is the coastal regions of the south, I doubt very much they would be forced out of the Crimea. But even if that were to happen, I can't see the regime coming up sufficient to bring about a revolution or a transition to a different form of government. Society has been very weakened over the last 10, 15 years. There are very few institutional means of organizing people other than social media, which we saw uh, with Navalny could be quite effective, but which has now been brought firmly under the control of the state and has only a limited influence anyway, because people in Moscow and St. Petersburg might be able to access the internet through VPNs and all the rest of it. And they certainly use Telegram, which is their main form of communication. But out in the sticks, in the provinces, in the small, very few people have internet in their homes. So they are dependent upon state media. The state still has enough resources in terms of currency reserves to pay its servitors, its police, its army to keep order. And I think that if we look back over the last 30, 40 years and back to the Stalin period, these waves of repression that have taken place in Russia, they act like a big stick. They cow the population into some element of, if not submission, then complicity with what's happening. Or at a very minimum, they just don't want to think about it. So they just close off their conscience and get on with their everyday lives without questioning what's actually going on. So I see very little possibility for a change of regime or a change of direction direction in Russia. And that does mean that we need to think in the longer term about how we help those Russians, because there are many of them who need to get out of the way of Russia because otherwise they're in danger of imprisonment. And those, what we might call the intelligentsia of Russia, so everyone from academics, journalists, scientists, IT people, who who could form a political class ready to go back to Russia at that moment when maybe through a military defeat, maybe through some other crisis, this regime is replaced. But who knows when that is? You're not going to be short of work anyway. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Orlando Fudge, thank you very much for joining World Review to talk about your new book. The Story of Russia is published by Bloomsbury and is out now. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com forward slash international. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday. I'm Alex Kruger. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.